And it is indeed good to be back with you. As Rob said, uh, I got to preach last weekend in Santa Barbara, which is the church uh, that I got saved in when I was 17. It's the church that uh, I was a pastor at for 10 years, and that church sent us out to plant this church just uh, about two years ago. And, uh, but as Rob said, I was having FOMO. You know what that is? Fear of missing out. I was driving home and listening to the service. And how about all those kids up here singing that VBS song? Um, I, what do you think, Ben, Nick? I think we got to add hand motions to our worship service. It just, yes, it'd be so, so good. Maybe get the kids, kids up here just in the corner every Sunday doing that. It'd be so, so good. But we're here again. We're uh, going to open the Word of God again. And so if you have your Bible, please open it to 1 Peter chapter 5. And guess what? Today we are finishing 1 Peter, which is exciting. It's always fun to come to the end of a book, which means that next week we're going to start another book. And you know what book we're going to be doing? Second Peter. There you go. Uh, but we already have an idea of what we're going to be doing after Second Peter. And just as a hint... Uh, it's from the Old Testament, and so we'll let you know in a few weeks what it's going to be. But very excited for what God has been doing as we've been studying First Peter. I can't reiterate enough how important we believe uh, these Wednesday nights in July are going to be, that if you would uh, bring the whole family, we'll have kids ministry, youth ministry. We'll all gather together for a meal. And really um, some teaching that we believe is foundational for the life of this church, uh, that we would be a church that operates in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. So, well, let's read this, uh, this last portion of First Peter chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 8 where we left off last week and go down to the end. So let me read it. It says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Salvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God of all grace. And we thank you that as we've sung this morning, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God, would you meet your people today with your love, with your kindness, with your grace. God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who are sober-minded and watchful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So back in verse 8, we hear these words again. Be sober-minded, be watchful. These aren't new things that Peter is saying to us. He's been saying things like, gird up the loins of your mind, or have this, he says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Jesus. And so all through the letter, we've been hearing these kinds of exhortations. And I remind you that an exhortation is 
an encouragement that calls for immediate action. What Peter is saying is, I'm telling you to do something and I want you to do it now. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Start now if you haven't and don't stop. And and this exhortation we see in verse 8 has to do with our minds and with our eyes. And a person's mind and a person's eyes are the parts of the body that have to do with awareness. What you think about and what you look at will bring about the awareness that is going to inform your decisions and your actions. Your mind and your eyes have to do with how aware are you. Now, this exhortation that Peter's giving, be sober-minded, be watchful, it's, it's a general charge that we should take in all areas of our lives. We should be sober-minded and watchful over our families. We should be sober-minded and watchful in our work, in entertainment, in government, in culture, in what we think about and what we watch. As we've learned in the last few weeks, elders are called to be sober-minded and watchful over the church. But this exhortation that Peter gives to us here about our minds and about our eyes, that we are to be watchful and sober-minded, Peter understands that this is specifically needed because he's aware that there is a constant threat in the life of a believer. He says in verse 8, we need to be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So I got to ask you today, Christian, are you continuously aware of the devil and his influence? That's the question for today. Are you continuously aware of the devil and his influence. You know, as Christians, we have three enemies of the soul. We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is the external influences of sin that come upon us. Our flesh is our own internal influence towards sin. And the devil is a spiritual influence towards sin. And so to be able to discern where a threat of temptation to sin is coming from is really important in the life of a believer. Discernment is important because what we sometimes do is we we sometimes give too much credit to any one of these enemies of the soul or we give too little credit to any of of these enemies. Sometimes Christians will blame everything on the devil, right? And they won't take responsibility for how their own flesh needs to be put to death. You know, you've heard it's like, oh, the devil's after me. My car wouldn't start this morning. Well, you probably actually just haven't changed your battery in like 10 years, and it's about time to do that, right? So not everything is the devil, but on the flip side, some people blame everything on their flesh and everything on the world, and they are not aware They're not sober-minded and watchful for how the devil may be at work in a particular area of your life. Does that make sense? Because we have an adversary. His name is the devil. The Bible also uses names like Satan or Serpent or Lucifer. And recall how Benkai spoke last week 
that the devil is a created being, that he is an angel, but one that is fallen because God resists the proud. And Satan tried to ascend higher than his creator, and so God cast him down. And therefore, Satan is called the father of pride and the father of lies. We know that the devil is the one, that one literal being who tempted man and woman in the garden. And his main way of doing that was to cause man to question God's goodness and God's word. He came to Eve, you remember, and he said this to her. He said, did God really say that? Did God really say that? And and he made them think that God must be keeping you from something that you want. And the devil's message has not changed. He's always wanting to question God's word, and he's always wanting you to believe that God is keeping you back from something good, that God is some sort of cosmic killjoy. But the description that Peter gives of the devil in verse 8 tells us a few things about who he is and what he does. First, it says that he is an adversary. Now, an adversary is a legal term. And Jesus was given a title in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, when we studied 1 John. You remember how Jesus is also called the advocate. That is also a legal term. And what an advocate does is an advocate defends and protects you. And an adversary, the opposite of that, is one who opposes and attacks you. And so these names that are given to the devil, the the devil and adversary, they're actually synonymous. They essentially mean the same thing. The name devil in Greek and, and the name Satan in Hebrew simply means adversary or slanderer. His name describes what he does. He accuses you before God. We read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, that the devil is also called the accuser of the brethren. And he goes before the throne of God day and night. He never ceases to bring accusations against you. And and before we move on from who the devil is and and more on to what he does, I want you to see something at the beginning of verse 8. I don't want to skip over this. Look at that first word in verse 8 at least in my Bible, says, your adversary, the devil. Your adversary, the devil. See, the devil is personally against you. The devil hates you. First, because you're made in the image and the likeness of God, and he hates anything that is of God. But especially if you've become a child of God, and Jesus is your advocate. The devil will most certainly oppose you if you are a believer in Christ. Now, our adversary, the devil, will do everything that he can to throw out. That, that's what it means to, to slander, to cast something between. He'll try to cause a separation between the defense and the protection that we find in Jesus, our advocate. So the devil hates you, and he never plays fair. And Peter is going to tell us more about how the devil works in verse 8. It says, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, 
theologically, we have to understand that the devil is not a lion, but he is like a lion. Interestingly, Jesus is also like a lion. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. But I want you to understand that the devil and Jesus are in no way like each other. Even though they're both considered like lions, Jesus and the devil are not the same in likeness. Jesus is our Savior, and he is the uncreated God of the universe. The devil is a created being, and his end is destruction in the lake of fire. Amen? And so Jesus and the devil are not even close to having the same level of dominion or power or likeness, nothing of that kind. We do not believe in, in theologically what is called dualism, where God and the devil are, you know, just fighting it out, and we're all wondering who's going to win in the end. It's not how it works. Jesus already won at the cross. The devil has been disarmed, meaning that he has a strong roar, but he has no bite for the believer. The victory is already decided. Jesus is the conquering lion. The first prophecy in the Bible declared this when Jesus crushed under his foot the head of the serpent. Yes, it bruised the heel of Jesus when he died on the cross, which is our redemption, but it crushed the head of the serpent. Now the devil, although he is in no way of the same level of power, dominion, or likeness to Jesus, the devil does have some power. He still has power to prowl. The devil prowls around like a lion, and he's looking around quietly and secretively for the opportunity to catch a prey that is not aware. See, this is why we've been charged to be sober-minded and to be watchful so that we would not be devoured. And maybe the whole, you know, lion and the, you know, attacking a prey isn't connecting for you. Maybe this one will, I know it has for me, but you ever been to a pool party and there's just somebody there just wants to take everyone into the pool? You know what I'm talking about? And, and who do they go after? They go for the people who are not sober-minded usually. Maybe had a few drinks, you know. Uh, definitely not aware, not watchful. Maybe by the edge of the pool just having a conversation. And they're going in. <laughs> right? They're going in. But, but who are the people? If, if you want to make sure you don't go in that pool, what do you got to do? Kind of back yourself into a corner. You look around. Plant your feet. You hang on to something. I'm not going in. This ain't happening. That person is sober-minded, and they're alert. They're watching to make sure that they're not going in. And the same is true for the devil. He knows where he's going. He's already bound to the lake of fire, if you will. He's wanting to take as many people down with him. But if we are standing firm in the grace of God, if we are sober-minded and alert, we're not going in. And so... He's seeking someone like that. He's seeking people to devour. And, and he will find and he will choose the ones who are not being watchful, those who are not mentally and spiritually alert. Now, just based on 1 Peter chapter 5, 
just if you kind of go back through this, just this chapter, these are the people that the devil will prey on. These are the people who are not following the exhortations that Peter has been giving. Those who will be potentially devoured by the enemy are those who resist authority, those who are proud, those who are anxious, those who don't believe that God cares for them, people who are unstable in their thinking, and those who are self-seeking. That's the devil's next meal. But based on the exhortations, if you're following them from, from God's word, those who are in submission, those who are humble, those who glorify and praise God, those who are not anxious but trusting that God cares for them, those who are sober-minded and those who are looking out for the lurking devil will not be devoured but will become overcomers in Jesus Christ. Amen? See, the way that we're to be sober-minded and alert is to, to read and obey God's word, to hide his word in our heart. And if you know anything about even how Jesus found his defense against the devil, we'll get into that in just a moment. Now, I'm going to ask you again this question that we started with Christian. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, are you continuously aware of the devil and his influence. Now, if you're not a believer, you've come here today, you wouldn't say you follow Jesus. Unless you cling to Jesus, you're going into that pool. I know that might sound kind of harsh, but it's the Bible. And we can cling to Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our advocate. So I'll read it again. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, if verse 8 tells us who the devil is and what he's up to and who he's trying to devour, then verse 9 is going to tell us as Christians how we're to respond to him. How do we fight back? What is our defense? It says this in verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So resist him is what Peter says. And remember how I said earlier that there are three enemies of the Christian soul. There's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And remember how I said it's important that we would discern where the threat to sin is coming from because when we know where the attack is coming from, it will determine how we engage in the battle. Because how we engage with the battle with the world and with the flesh is different than how we engage with the devil. I want you to see this. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 through 11, uh, this is sort of speaking of the, the influences of the world. It says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, O woman of God, flee these things. And then in 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So when it comes to how we respond to the temptation of sin from the flesh, the Bible says flee. How we respond to the temptations of the world, the Bible says flee. Flee, run away, get out of Dodge. But when the scripture instructs us of how to respond to the devil, what does it tell us to do? It says, resist him. 
We stand firm in our place. We have authority in Jesus Christ. We do not run away from the devil. We stand firm in the authority we have in Christ, and the devil is to run from us. We're not to run away. And Jesus is our highest example of this. We see as he received the spirit baptism after being baptized with water and he was led into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and there he was tempted by the devil. And what did Jesus do? As a man filled with the Holy Spirit, he resisted the devil. Jesus stood firm. And the devil was using all that is in the world to tempt Jesus. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the the boastful pride of life. But Jesus simply resisted the devil by standing firm in the promises of God. Go read that testimony of Jesus in the wilderness. What did Jesus use as his defense? Scripture. Again and again, When the devil was trying to say to Jesus, did God really say that? Jesus said, this is what God said. Read it. (laughs) And look, the devil knows the Bible probably better than you do. But he loves to twist it to his own wicked waves. If we would handle the word of God, rightly divide it, hide it in our hearts, stand firm in it, the devil can be resisted. We are to resist him Firm in our faith, which is in our faith, it's ours, but it's resisting him by the righteous standing that we have in Jesus. And and I already quoted to you part of Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, about the devil being the accuser of the brethren day and night. But let me read the rest of Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 and 11. It says this, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren, that's the devil, is cast down, which accuses them before God day and night. And listen to this. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. How did the brethren overcome the accuser? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, resistance must be done with faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection. And it must be your faith. You have to have a testimony. There's a story in Acts chapter 7 when there were seven guys trying to cast out a demon. And they were trying to do it by invoking the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. They said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon, this unclean spirit, responded and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. We have to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And it has to be our testimony. I say to the youth all the time, there's no piggyback rides into heaven. It's got to be our faith, our righteous standing in the righteousness of Christ. Now, in the same breath of verse 9, 
Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, it's important that we know that the devil is personally against each one of us, but we're also to know that we're not alone in it. The same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Sometimes we think that we're the only ones that the devil is after. No, you're not that special, right? He's after the whole brotherhood. And look, guys, if we are sober-minded, if we're watchful together, if we're staying closely connected, we have a stronger resistance together. You've seen it, right? When a lion is prowling around near a pack, say like a pack of zebras or something, does it just go straight into the middle of the pack? and attack the, the, the big group. No, it finds the one that is off, the one that is alone and isolated from the rest. We can learn something from the Discovery Channel, right? We, we, nature has a lot to teach us. To, does the illustration preach, right? We're meant to be together. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone, but it's meant to be lived in community. Yes, we are all saved individually. That is true. But we are not saved to individuality. We are saved into community. And and what we need to know is, yes, the devil can tempt us. And and he can come after. but, But when we stand together, we are united in faith. And we're to know, like Peter says, that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This means that we can have sympathy for one another. And sympathy is powerful. See, when you're going through the heat of the battle and the, the devil is waging war against you, you can have people around you say, yeah, I know what that's like. I know exactly what it's like to have the devil tempt me. I even know what it's like to give in to that sin. I've suffered like you suffer. I get it. I know what it's like. And Peter was a man who could understand that. Remember what Jesus said to him. Peter, tonight the devil is going to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Peter had been sifted like wheat. You remember Peter was the one who heard from Jesus, get behind me, Satan. Like, Peter was sympathetic to the sufferings of of being attacked by the evil one. He knowed what spiritual warfare was like, but it was never meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done in community. We can have a stronger resistance when we are together. We can pick each other up when we fall. We can pull each other in close when we wander. We can stand firm and resist the devil, and he will flee from us. Amen? Now you're thinking... Well, what about the rest of the text? (laughs) We're coming almost to a close. And so we are going to cover the rest of it. You guys all good? Because I don't want us to end thinking about that loser, the devil. I want us to walk out of here today knowing that we already have the victory in Christ, that we can stand firm, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and we have a testimony to declare. Amen? Amen. So verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 
The devil has an end in this world, and so does suffering. There is an after part to suffering where there's no more sin, there's no more death, there's no more devil when we truly stand firm in the faith, when God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those are really good words. Those are strong words of security. Let me read them again. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The same you that the devil is after. The God of all grace will do these things. You are secure in his grip. I love how Jesus said to Peter, yeah, Satan will sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And those are strong words, and this is what God has promised. And how good is it to be called, to be known, and to be loved by the God of all grace? Because what that means is, yes, there is a little while of suffering. There is a little while of having spiritual warfare from the evil one who wants to destroy us. But we look to the God of all grace to know what he's doing and to trust him. I love that that. that name of God, the God of all grace. It means that there's many kinds of grace, and and simply it means that there is grace for the past. There's grace for your present, and there is grace for your future. He is the God of all grace. Sometimes we think that grace has a limit, that once you come up to a certain point, the devil's like, or, or God's like, wow, I've dished out a lot of grace for you, man. So <laughs> here you go, you know? And, and there is a true sense in which sometimes even the church is called to hand people over to the devil for the destruction of their flesh. But God always receives you back, and God will bring you to strengthen and establish and confirm you. And it's, he's the God of all grace. Guys, you, you haven't sinned too much. The devil hasn't beat you down far enough because we serve the God of all grace who can lift us from the lowest depths. And he will hold you in his grace. Now, we come to the closing remarks of the letter, the signing off part, after he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I'm so thankful that Jesus is the one who will rule and reign and already is. Verse 12 says, By Salvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So Peter mentions this brother, Salvanus, and many commentators believe that this is the same person as Silas, the man who traveled with Paul for many of his missionary journeys. And so whether Salvanus and Silas are the same guy, regardless, Peter calls him a faithful brother brother, and how do we want to be named? We want to be named as faithful, and and part of his faithfulness was how he helped Peter write this letter. It it was common in those times that the person writing the letter would have a scribe, and that Peter would have spoken out loud what he would want to have written, and then Salvanus was the one who would write it down, and you're thinking, oh my goodness, does this mean that Peter's not the author of this book? And it's, some people get so twisted up by that, but no, Peter's still the author, but, but Silvanus is the one who actually wrote it down. 
And yet Peter says, I have written briefly to you, meaning he probably could have said so much more to us, but uh, we need to trust this, you guys, the authority of Scripture. That yes, it was written by man, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Peter spoke it, Salvanus wrote it down, but God breathed it. And, and every word, nothing more and nothing less, this is the word of God. This has been the letter that has exhorted us as elect exiles. This is the letter that has declared the true grace of God. So let's stand firm in it. Amen, church? And then we look at this last part. It says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And there's thoughts as to what she who is at Babylon is. I'll, I'll just simply give you my thought. I believe it's referring to the church. The church is often referred to in the feminine. And that Babylon is speaking about Rome, the church that is in Rome where Peter was writing from. But because Babylon to the Jews was how Rome was to the Christians. But whatever she who is at Babylon is, she's chosen. She sends a greeting, which means that this person or persons were the people of God, and so was Mark, his son. And Mark was the guy who wrote John Mark, the Gospel of Mark, uh, that we studied when we first started the church. And um, he likely got all of his source and material from Peter, you know the story of Mark, right? How he was with Paul on the missionary journeys and things got too hard for him, so he kind of bailed out. And then that's when Paul and Barnabas had that disagreement and they went their separate ways. Well, now Mark's with Peter, and I just love this idea because Peter really believes in grace, the true grace of God. He stands for me. He really believes it because he's like, Mark, why don't you come with me? You think denying Paul's bad? I deny Jesus. <laughs> So come on, come hang out with me, buddy. Let's serve the God of all grace together. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This kiss of love, as Paul would call it, a holy kiss, is a reminder that in the community of God's people, there's to be an expression of love. Now, every once in a while, you see people kind of trying to bring back the holy kiss. You know, we're more in our culture like the side hug, you know, um, I've been in cultures where the kiss is used, but it, it wasn't a sign of romantic love. It was a sign of brotherly love, the phileo kind of love. It, it's the affection. And what, what he's saying at the very end there is this, is you need each other, you guys. You're in this world. You're going to suffer. You'll have to stand firm. You've got every attack from every angle, but you have each other. And you have the love of Jesus you have the love of one another, what else do you need? Love God, love people, you'll be fine. Amen? And he says there, signing off, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this community, for these people here. Thank you, God, that we are not meant to suffer alone. We're not meant to engage in spiritual warfare alone. We're together in this. And God, I, I believe that your people here have been suffering a little bit for a little while. And God, that you would want to comfort them and uh, pour out your grace upon them. So whether people here today have struggled with their flesh, God, pour out your grace. Whether people have struggled with the 
temptations from the world. God, pour out your grace. God, I know that all of us here in some way, in some measure, have been attacked and accused by the evil one. And some of the accusations may be true, but God, what you say about us is even more true. You are the God of all grace, where our past is covered by your blood, our present is covered by your blood, and so is our future. And we have a testimony to bear, and God, we stand for a minute. God, as we will receive communion this morning, I pray that it would be a strengthening for your church, a restoring for your church, an establishing for your church. God, that we would um, look to the everlasting, eternal God, the God of all grace. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.